this morning, uh, I'm, I'm excited. Um, the book of James. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of James. It's right after Hebrews in the New Testament. This is a, this is a great, great book of the New Testament, and uh, I'm excited to go through it. I, I've been praying. I was praying back even, I don't know, the first month uh, of being here. I, I was praying what to do, where God would have us go. Uh, I was convinced that it was a good place to start with going through doctrine and, and so what do we believe? What do we understand the Bible to say? What does it teach us about who we are in Christ and what we're supposed to do, what God expects of us, and how do we live that out? And then I began to pray, where would we go after that? And the book of James is such a practical, helpful little book of the New Testament. And, and let me just tell you a little bit about James. The author of the... Anybody want to guess who the author of the book is? James. Good guess. It is James. That's right. The author of the letter is James. But James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's the half-brother because they had the same mother, but you know, a different father, obviously. But half-brother... Here's the thing, though, about James. One of the most important things to notice or to take note of about James is the way his relationship or his view of his brother changed throughout the course of the, the life and earthly ministry of Jesus and, and after his resurrection between the time Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and then the time he sat down and God inspired him to write this little sermon. And I call it a sermon because it says the letter of James, but as you'll see as we go through it, it really it has more of the feeling of a sermon to the people. And so he wrote this sermon. Uh, most scholars agree, based on the evidence and, and the context, that James wrote this about the early 40s or mid-40s of A.D. So you're talking about perhaps 10 years or less between the time... Jesus died, was buried, rose again, ascended, and the time James was inspired to write this. So real close to the events of, of the life of Christ. And here's the thing about that. As most of the, all of the disciples at the time, they, didn't, they were slow to come around to knowing who Jesus was and believing that Jesus really was the Christ. They said some things about that. They felt like that was probably true. They saw all that Jesus did. They heard all that he taught. But it wasn't until after the resurrection and they saw him resurrected in bodily form that that really, really took hold of their hearts. And you read that in the New Testament, especially at the end of the Gospels. You see what happened to them and how even Thomas doubted and said, well, unless I see him and put my hand on the wounds, I'm not going to believe. Well, James, his perspective completely changed in those 10 years and he came to understand and believe that his half-brother was the Messiah of God. He was the, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And we see that at the very beginning. We're going to see it as soon as we read the first verse of this thing. And so the other thing to notice is, and this is why I say it's more of a sermon, you see who he's writing to. And we're going to see that at the beginning of this sermon also. You know, Paul... The Apostle Paul had kind of a pattern that he would write 
to the churches. And you see that to this church in this city. You see the, the name of the letters, the name for the city where the church was. But James, as we're going to see, he's writing to a whole group of believers that are all over, geographically, are all over the place. And so it's more of a, of a sermon content than it is a letter. And they, it says they're dispersed. We're going to read this when we read these first 11 verses. They're dispersed. They're scattered. But here's why. They're scattered because, mainly because of persecution. Persecution of the way. You know, you see that in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. You read that very often. Those who were part of the way. You know why it was called the way? Jesus says, I'm the way. And the truth and the life. And so it became, it became known uh, in that culture at that time, those who were following the way. And so they're dispersed because they're being persecuted. We're talking about Jews that have come to believe Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, and they're being dis, uh, dispersed and persecuted because of it. And so that's why James is writing to them. It's a, a word of encouragement, the sermon of encouragement, and let me make three final little points here before we get started. Three things about the book of James that are just make it so, so very helpful. First of all, James is very practical. It's a very practical sermon. He offers the reader wise counsel about everyday issues and things that we're facing. He wrote this in the first century, and yet it's timely for us. So practical, practical wisdom. Second, James is very concise. James doesn't mince words. He knows what he's going to say. He knows what he means, and he gets right to the point, and that's helpful. It's only five chapters, but James knows what he's trying to say because the Holy Spirit is giving him the message. And third, James uses metaphors and illustrations a lot, and that's so helpful because it's, it makes his, his words, one, easy to understand, but two, easy to remember. And so by using these metaphors and illustrations and comparisons, uh, it helps the reader to hang on to the words that he offers. And that last characteristic, the, the illustrations and the comparisons, that makes this book, James, a favorite among many modern-day Bible readers. So, without any further delay, I just want to give you a little bit of background before we jump right in. Let's start with verse 1. We're going to uh, pay our attention to... The first 11 verses this morning as we start with this sermon from James, the brother of Jesus. Let's begin in verse 1. Follow along with me as I read. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect work, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and does not reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must, he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts... It's like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of 
humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away may God honor the reading of his word would you pray with me Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you'll speak clearly to us by your Spirit. Help us to understand, Lord. Give us, give us open and attentive ears to hear. Give us willing hearts and minds to understand. And God, I pray you give us the strength we need to be obedient. Help us to do what your Word tells us to do. Help us to take it to heart and live it out. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we go through these first 11 verses, we're going to take verse 1 kind of by itself as a greeting and just make a few notes about that. Then there's three main ideas here in these first 11 verses that we'll make sure we don't miss out on. So first of all, let's look at verse 1, because this tells us, one, who's writing, tells us who he's writing to, and it tells us a little bit about those two groups. First of all, James, a bondservant. Now, he's the half-brother of Jesus, but he says he is a bondservant. This is what he calls himself, a bondservant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a couple things there we got to make sure we don't miss. First of all, he says God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Lord and Christ, understand, are both titles. That's not his name. That's, those are titles of who he is. Jesus is his name, but he is both Lord and Christ. I want to share this real, real quick with you as the, the Spirit has just reminded me. Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the very first sermon of the New Testament church, the last thing he says at the last sentence of his sermon in Acts 2.36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So James identifies these two titles with his brother. He's not just my brother. He's Lord. He's Christ. In other words, he's God. So James says, this is who he is. And then he says, don't miss this, I'm his bond servant. Now that's a real interesting word in the Greek language because in the New Testament that word is doulos. Doulos, it means bond, literally bond servant. Let me tell you the difference between a slave and a bond servant. Both of them served their master for a period of seven years. But let me tell you what happened at the end of the seven years. The slave worked seven years and then achieved his freedom and was set free and went on his way. The bond servant worked seven years and at the end of the seven years was free to do what he wanted. And you know what he did? He stayed right there and continued to serve his master just because of the great love that he had for his master. So voluntarily, after the seven years, the bond servant remained and continued to serve. So James says, I'm a bond servant. I might have had to serve at the beginning, but guess what? Now I want to serve because I love him so much. We ought to all strive to be bond servants both in action and attitude because we love the Lord Jesus Christ so much that, yeah, we might need to serve him because of what he's done for us, but according to Scripture, we want to serve him because we love him so much. 
I pray that's where we would all get to. We continue serving out of love for our master. So who's he writing to? James says, I'm writing to the 12 tribes that are dispersed. Jews representing the 12 tribes of God's people. They've been dispersed all around, in and around, away from Jerusalem because of the persecution of the way. So you get to, get to see here that this sermon is being distributed. It's meant for all of God's people. Wherever they may have been driven because of persecution or fear of persecution, it doesn't matter where you live, the Word of God is for you. And so James is writing this sermon to the dispersed 12 tribes. So that's who wrote, that's who's being written to, but now there's three things that he says here in these first 11 verses that we want to look at very specifically, all under the main idea of pursuing spiritual wholeness. Number one, endure with joy. Endure with joy because it leads to godly maturity. Look at verses 2, 3, and 4 with me. The first thing that James says, and this is a, a command, an imperative command, consider it all joy. And you see, he says, my brothers and sisters, my brethren, in other words, believers, consider it joy. When, James, what should we consider joy? When you encounter various trials. Now, let me stop right there and just say, how many of us, if we're honest, are joyfully happy when we experience trials and tribulation and problems and challenges. Anybody just overjoyed because of that? I'll be honest and tell you I'm not. Frankly, I don't like it. When I have trials, I, I don't enjoy that. But that just proves that I'm a sinner saved by grace because clearly I'm not looking at it the way God's Word tells me to look at it. It can't be any more clear than this. James says, consider it all joy not just a little bit. Don't find, this, don't find a silver lining in a bad situation. The Bible says consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, why? That's a good question. We'll look at verse 3. Knowing, in other words, this is not something that we should have to be told or reminded, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance, you think of a running a race, you think of having to persevere to the end, you think of a long, maybe a marathon, you get this picture in your mind. If you're going to have endurance, you can't just run, if it's a 10-lap race, you can't run two laps and call it quits. You've got to run it all, and so you have to have endurance to make it to the end. Yesterday, college football got its main... I know there's a few, few other games earlier than that, but yesterday was the main start-up day for college football. Can I get an amen? College football's back here, praise the Lord. So that was a good day. You know, game day came on at 9 o'clock yesterday morning, and I just had a little moment because I'm so thankful that, you know, game day's back on. So y'all just have to bear with me for a minute. I'm sorry. It was, a, it was a, almost a spiritual moment. So college football's back in, and I saw all kind of different uh, promotional videos and different things trying to get people hyped up and excited about their team and all this thing. But let me tell you about one I saw. One of them I saw was uh, between the third and fourth quarters of a particular game yesterday when in a video that the main character of the video was the strength and conditioning coach for the team. 
and he was yelling into the camera saying championships are not won when everybody's watching when all the crowds there and the band and the cheerleaders and everybody that's not when those things are achieved it's it's achieved when you're working when nobody's paying attention and you're sweating and you're you're tired and you're tempted to give up but you keep on because you know that when you get to the fourth quarter it's all the more important to endure to the end and be just as strong as you were at the beginning because that's when a lot of people tend to to lose their energy and, and give up or give out but he was saying Championships are won in the fourth quarter. Use that analogy for our lives. We have to endure to the end. So how do we get endurance? Well, the Bible says that we should understand that it's through our trials that we develop endurance. Consider joy because the, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And by the way, this is the purpose of trials. When God allows you to go through difficulties and trials and tribulations and, and things that test your faith or your belief or your trust in God, when you go through those things, understand it is totally purposeful. It's not wasted. It, now, it, it can be wasted. If, if you don't realize what's happening or why, then you could waste it. But understand the purpose of the trial is to build you up and build up your endurance. And here's the purpose of endurance. Look at verse 4. Let endurance, there's another command, let endurance have its perfect work. What is the work that this endurance is doing in the life of the believer? So you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So you're growing to a godly maturity. So here's, here's the, the, the summary of that first point that we should endure with joy, considered all joy when we encounter various trials. The, the point is, when we're tested, when we have difficulties, we should understand if we're never tested, then we'll never know if our faith is genuine. You understand what that, what that means? If I don't ever test it, let's say I'm supposed to learn a particular subject. Well, if I'm never tested on that subject, how can I be really sure that I know it? What's the evidence that it's really found a lodging and a home in my heart and that it's really a part of who I am? What's the evidence that that's the case if I'm never tested? See, once it's tested, you get this phrase in, in, in our culture. Well, it's, it's tried and true. You know what that means? Tried and true. That means it's been tested and it has been found true. It's made it through the test. Endure trials with joy, leading to godly maturity. God brings difficulties into the lives of believers for a purpose, and it can be accomplished only if we respond to our problems in the right way. This makes us stronger Christians. That's number one, endure with joy. Number two, ask with faith for godly wisdom. Look at verse 5 down to verse 8. This is a very well-known verse in the book of James, verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let me show you the connection between these two. Look at the end of verse 4. 
What is endurance accomplishing in the Christian? You would be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, right? Lacking in nothing. In other words, you're not falling short in any area. But, he says in verse 5, but if you lack wisdom. Well, didn't he just say lacking in nothing? So our goal is to move to where we're lacking in nothing. But if, if you do lack something, if you lack wisdom, the Bible says, ask God. So if you, if you are having this work done in you by endurance, by the testing of your faith, but then you realize you lack wisdom, and by the way, wisdom is not a lack of knowledge. Wisdom is not necessarily knowing how to make the best use of the knowledge you have. That's a very fine distinction. You can have knowledge, but if you don't know how to use that knowledge, that means you're lacking wisdom. And so the Bible says, if you lack wisdom, ask God. Who else would you ask, honestly? Why would you ask anyone other than God? The Bible says in verse 5, ask God who gives to all generously and does not reproach. Let me tell you what that means. This is really important because it happens in our lives, especially in this world. Have you ever made it known that you didn't know something? Like you're, maybe you're in a class and the teacher asks a question and everybody just sits there, trying, you know, maybe not making eye contact because you don't want to get called on because you know you don't know the answer. So when the teacher has floated that question out there and they're just sitting there staring around, kind of like I'm doing at you, and waiting for the answer, but you know in your heart, I don't have a clue. And have, have you ever then been made to feel inferior or less than because you didn't know the answer? It's almost like you're being, you're being made fun of because you don't have the knowledge that was asked of you. You ever been made to feel that way? Maybe you feel embarrassed. You feel belittled because you didn't know the answer. That's what happens in our world many times because there's this whole, remember this phrase, knowledge is power. Well, you know, that's, the world looks at it like that, but, but then it becomes a competition. Well, who has the most knowledge? And if I have more knowledge than you, then I'm obviously a better person than you are. I can't believe you don't know that. Good gracious. Have you never, have you never learned anything? You don't know the answer to this question. And you feel, you feel embarrassed. You feel bad about yourself. God never treats his children like that. Never. God will, ne God will not make you feel embarrassed. God will not make you feel of lesser value because you don't know, because you're... You're asking the one who knows, and he's more than willing to give it to you. He said, said he, the Bible says he gives generously and does not reproach. He does not belittle. He does not make you feel inferior. You know why? He's just thankful that you came to him because he knows he has what you need, and he's just waiting for you to come to him so he can give it to you. That's what a, a good God does to his children. So that's what God does. The Bible says in verse 5, Let him ask of God who gives to all generously without reproach, and it will be given to him. But how do we ask? This is verses 6, 7, and 8. This is the rest of this point. We ask in faith for godly wisdom. In faith, verse 6. He must ask in faith without any doubting. What does that mean exactly? Well, James, here's one of his illustrations. 
little metaphors. He says, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Have you ever been... Let me, let me just uh, paint a picture for you here. Driven and tossed by the wind, knocked around by the wind and the waves. In other words, there's no, uh, no stability. Okay? Have you ever been out in the ocean and felt an undertow? You ever had that feeling? You ever, like you're standing still, but it feels like the water's just moving by you. And you get, I've been out in the ocean before when I was younger, and I, you know, I, I, we got towels or chairs or an umbrella or something sitting there, and I said, all right, I'm going to walk straight out. I'm go right out here, and then I get out there in the ocean. I turn around and I look. All right, I'm lined up with, with my people. I know where my family is. I go out in the ocean, and then if I don't pay attention for 10, 15, 20 minutes, I turn around and check again. Where'd they go? I'm, I might be 100 yards down the shore in either direction, depending on the, the way the, the water's moving. And I don't know where I am. I don't know where. I, I've lost my reference point. I'm, I'm unstable. It's because I've been driven and tossed around by some water. So now I'm not lined up where I thought I was. You see the picture? If you doubt God, and by the way, if we doubt God, why are we going to ask Him for anything to begin with? If we don't think He can come through and deliver, why are we asking? The only reason we ask God for something is because we know who He is. We know that He is faithful and He will deliver. Every time it says, the Bible says He gives generously to all. It will be given to him. So we can't come to God and ask him for a gift and then doubt that he's going to give it to us. Because then now we're calling into question the character of God. So verse 7 says, That man, the one who doubts, ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable, in all his ways. If we doubt God, there's no reason to expect a positive answer. And by the way, doubting, double-minded, that doubting, that, that means uh, unstable, like the words used here, unstable, restless, unsettled. That word literally means having two souls. Double-minded, having two souls. This uh, spiritual schizophrenia, is what you might call it. That's what James is criticizing here. It says it's a, it's a division, it's a basic division of the soul that leads to thinking and speaking and acting in a way, listen, that contradicts the one who claims to belong to God. Did you hear what I said? If, if you claim to belong to Jesus... That, that Jesus has saved you from your sins, you are one of his children, but then you don't have faith enough to trust that, that he'll hear you when you call. It means your soul is divided. That's unstable. It's unsettled. It's restless. And, and it's not what God calls his children to be like because if there's anything that we know about God 
and his character, anything at all. I mean, we know the Bible tells us a lot about our Lord. But if there's anything that we know about God, he is faithful all the time in every way. There, there has never, never been a promise God's made he hadn't kept. There's never been uh, an, an incident in any of our lives. I guarantee you, I defy you to come up with any moment in your life, if you're honest with yourself, where God has just fallen asleep at the wheel. Oh, I know it might feel like that sometimes. But God, the Bible says, when we are faithless, He is still faithful. He cannot deny Himself. God is who He is. His character, all His characteristics are perfect. He, he will not fail us. And by the way, if we think for a moment that God could possibly fail us, then let me just ask you this question. On what are we banking our salvation? What are we doing here? If we think for a moment that God is capable of failing us and not coming through, how do we sleep at night? How do we go through this life and, and know that God's got us covered and, and our eternity in Christ is secure. How, how do we do that if we think that God's capable of failing us at any point? That's not who God is. That's not the Jesus I know. Jesus has never failed me. I failed him more times than I care to mention, but he's never failed me, ever, and he never will. He gives generously to all who ask. We ask God in faith for godly wisdom. Finally, number three, we should judge with care for a godly perspective. And when I say judge, I'm talking about not judging others. I'm talking about judging ourselves. Self-examination, a godly perspective. Verses 9, 10, and 11, the last part of this particular section James says, by the Holy Spirit, the, the brother or the church member, the body of Christ, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man in his humiliation. So what we have here is two believers that are in two different places, two different circumstances. So you have one believer who uh, does not have the world's goods. One believer that is uh, in modest circumstances maybe does not have very much wealth or financial stability, but they are in Christ just the same. And then you have another believer who God has seen fit to trust with some of the world's goods, that he would be a good steward. And so you have one believer who is, who is modest, one believer who is maybe a little bit more wealthy. And James is addressing both of them, and he says the brother... Uh, of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position and the rich man in his humiliation. Now, what does that mean exactly? Here's what it means. Your position is based on Christ. Period. If you are a poor Christian, 
then despite not having the world's goods, you are seated in the heavenly places with Jesus Christ. What higher position could you have? If you're in Christ, you have a high position. Therefore, you can glory in that high position. If you are a Christian and God has seen fit to entrust you with some of the world's goods, that you would be a good steward of them, then you should glory in your humble position, your humiliation because of Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means that despite having the world's goods, you are no higher than the poorest believer because our identity is in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are not judging ourselves. That's the point of this passage. The possessions of this world will pass away. We don't need to prioritize a pursuit of the world above a pursuit of Christ. Because in the last verse of this passage, verse 11, says, So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. In other words, the wealthy believer who becomes tempted to pursue wealth above Christ will fade away in the midst of his pursuit because the priorities have now become out of order. In other words, the, the wealth that's been entrusted to him as a steward is no longer a, a blessing and gift from God to use for God's glory and in God's way. Now, all of a sudden, it's a, it's a priority. It could become an idol and displace Christ on the throne in your heart and your life. James, in these verses, he addresses these two Christians and he exhorts each of them, regardless of their circumstances, to look at their spiritual identity as the measure of their significance. The point of the passage then is that Christians always must evaluate themselves by spiritual standards, not material standards. Folks, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter where you were born, where you grew up, what school you went to, what job you have, what vehicle you might drive, or how much money is in your checking account. None of those things matter according to your value in Christ. None of them. Our identity is found, our value is found in Christ. And what He's done on our behalf. I, I'm, I'm not valuable based on what I have. I'm valuable because Jesus spilled His blood for me. Does that resonate with you? Do you understand what James is trying to tell us? We don't find our value and identity in a, in a name or a job or a car or a, a, a bank account or, or anything else on this, on this earth. We, found, we find our value in the name of Jesus. And that's the only thing of significance that should resonate in our hearts so let's conclude this this morning and see the, the summary here of what James has begun to teach us we should endure our trials with joy because it leads us to godly maturity we should ask God in faith leading to godly wisdom we should learn to judge ourselves carefully so that we would develop a, a godly perspective. So you, godly maturity, godly wisdom, godly perspective. Do you see a theme developing? This is godly character. To be a follower of Christ is to develop, grow in the mind of Christ. And folks, this does not happen by accident. 
It has to be intentional. There are disciplines that have to be cultivated. If we're going to grow toward a life like this, we have to pursue spiritual wholeness through the gospel. That means there's never going to come a time in the life of the believer where we can ever afford to forget the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. Those, those things, that story, that true historical account of Christ, that, that has to be forefront in our minds all the time because that's going to lead us into a godly character. It's our only hope to be spiritually whole is to hold on to Jesus with everything we have. And if you want to be like Him, you've got to spend time with Him. That's a rule. If you want to be like Jesus, you've got to spend time with Jesus. And here's the last thing I'm going to say about this, and then we'll pray and be done. You know, there's a test. There's a test for how we're doing in our progress toward being spiritually whole. You ready? Here's the test. Do we show up with a bib or an apron? See, if we show up with a bib, it means we just came to be fed. If we show up with an apron, it means we came to serve. See, the, the more spiritually mature we become, the more like Jesus we become. We leave the bib at home and we bring the apron because we know that our heart and mind is being transformed to where we're worried less about ourselves and more about others. Our, our perspective, our mindset, it, it takes us off of our... We're not doing what they call uh, spiritual navel-gazing. He's always looking at me. What, what's in it for me? What can I get? What, how's this going to help me? Well, yeah, when you're, when you're a baby Christian, it's all about me because I've got to grow up. But when we grow up, that perspective come, goes off of ourself and, and out. Who can I serve today? How, how can I be a blessing to somebody today? Let me get my apron so I can serve. Mark 10, 45. Do you know it? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That's the life we should be looking for. Let's pray.